You're listening to Anything But Silent with me, Cleo Laskarin. There's a famous Albert Einstein quote that's used a lot in the library world, and it goes, the only thing you absolutely have to know is the location of the library. The sentiment being, once you're in a library, there's no end to what you can uncover. And that's what we're going to be doing today, using libraries as places of research to unearth mysteries, crack codes, and sometimes discover hidden secrets. To guide us through this episode, I've enlisted a whole host of library workers to help lift the veil on the secrets that lurk between the shelves. But first, I heard about a story based out in New Hampshire in the States, where Rebecca Heath, a research librarian, stumbled across an unsolved mystery in the archives. So I got on the phone. I actually read about the case, I would say probably about 10 years ago, I came across it looking through archive uh, newspaper articles and saw that there was a barrel found in the woods and then 15 years later a second barrel was found. And I assumed that since it was an archived article that the mystery had been solved by then and and someone must have identified these uh, Jane Doe's. But when I looked into it, it, it turns out that it was still unsolved and that these Jane Doe's still didn't have their names. So were you at the library when you found these articles? I came across the article looking for something completely different, but I was was looking through the archives at work, yeah. I work in financial services, so it's not like a public library. It's a library of five librarians, and um, we work within financial services, so insurance industry. Okay. Interesting. And did it sort of pique your interest? Why did you start looking looking into this and looking for more information? I'm I'm going to say about 2016, New Hampshire State Police made a press release saying, we think we know who the perpetrator of these crimes were. Um, he went by the name Bob Evans. So they were looking for more info on him. They still don't know who the girls were. It was just so strange to me that this crime was seemingly unfolding backwards. Yeah, usually you know who the victim is before you figure out who the criminal is. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That was just astonishing to me that we didn't know. I, like, I kept seeing everywhere people would comment on the case. Why isn't anyone looking for them? Why isn't anyone looking? And it, it was upsetting to me because I, it's like, no, somebody is looking for them. We just have to kind of connect the dots. Mm-hmm. So when that press release came out in New Hampshire, at that point, I was hooked. I just needed to know every single tidbit about the case. Somebody knew something. I just felt anyone could find something that could possibly help piece the puzzle together to uncover who these victims were. So can you just tell me a little bit about the murders? So uh, in 1985, there was an oil drum found, and it contained the body of an adult female and a young child. And they assumed that these two individuals were related somehow, either maternally sisters or they they could have been mother and daughter. Nothing came in. They didn't know anything about who this adult female and the child were. And then 15 years later, a detective that was new on the case decided he was just 
going to check out the land that this barrel was found. And while he's out there, he finds another barrel. And sadly, that barrel also contained two young children. And then DNA tests proved that the youngest child was related to the adult female and the older girl that was found in the first barrel. And that's pretty much all they knew for, I'm going to say, about 2010. I think maybe they started doing new composites. It was still very cold. It was, it was a case that there seemed to be no information on. So what did you do to work it out? What was the process like? Naturally, somebody doesn't assume that their loved one has been a victim of homicide, so most likely they're not going to be looking on missing persons websites. So I went to message boards, mm-hmm. um, any type of message board that I could find individuals that were looking for loved ones um, and anything that fit kind of the time frame, the ages, and I would just go through these listings one by one by one and ruling out that this individual was found or this individual was living, and that was my process. And so did you use your, like, research librarian skills to help connect the dots? I, I guess to a, to a degree, the sleuthing part, I would attribute to librarian skills. Most of the time, if somebody's coming to librarians, it's probably because it's something they couldn't find readily on their own. So I would say that played a role in it. But I guess eventually you did solve the case. So can you, what was that moment like? So I'll start where I found one listing that seemed to fit. There was a woman that was looking for her husband's half-sister, which was one of the key words that I was using to search because we knew that two of the girls that were found in the barrels, we knew that they were maternally related, but paternally they were not. So I tried using terms that were like half-sister, stepsister, terms like that. So um, one specific post, there was this woman, she's posting, looking for a Sarah McWaters. And I put it in the list. And as I'm going through the list, I started looking more into Sarah McWaters. And I noticed that there were posts that she actually had a half-sister and her family was also looking for her. So I thought, oh, wow, that's a possibility. We know that the fathers are different. Then fast forward to about a year later, I was listening to a podcast that was covering the case because I needed to know every single detail. And I figured, well, if there's just one little tidbit that I uncover, Mm -hmm. maybe there's details that I don't know. And sure enough, on the third episode, they're covering the isotopes of the individual and it just fit and everything pushed me back to that one listing I couldn't rule out. So I was just determined. I was like, you know what? I'm going to find that woman. I have to talk to her. I have to find out what the status is. So I, I went on Facebook and tracked this woman down and just sent her a message. It was about 9.30 at night. And she instantly responded back. I, I asked, are you 
the woman that was looking for Sarah McWaters. And she said she was. So I, I kind of told her, hey, you know, I, I, I try and help individuals out if they're looking for family members. Is there any other details that you can, you know, tell me? Maybe I can help track her down. Mm-hmm. And she's just giving me very, very basic details. And then she threw in, oh, I think he left. she left with a guy and his last name was Rasmussen, which is the true identity of the serial killer. And I mean, at that point, I, I knew that there was no way this, this was them, that this was going to be a big break in the case. So is that sort of your big, like, aha moment? Yeah, absolutely. Because New Hampshire State Police had a press release saying, oh, his name is Bob Evans, but it's an alias. I want to say about six months later, made another statement saying his born name was uh, Terry Rasmussen. So at that point, Rasmussen was was a was a name that I was certainly not expecting her to throw out. I didn't ask about the case or anything. She's merely giving out answers um, that caught me off guard. Could you believe that you actually figured it out? <laughs> still, it still seems just crazy. For me, I never went into it with the intent, thinking, "Oh, I'm just going to solve this case and like this will be great." It was certainly nothing like that. It was merely thinking that an individual could maybe make a difference or find a little breadcrumb, so to speak, to pass along to law enforcement. That's really all I was expecting. But instead, you sort of gave them everything that they needed. You filled in all the blanks. Uh, yeah, oddly, <laughs> oddly enough, yes. Yeah, that's incredible. That's so cool. It's, it's super crazy. I, I, it'd be a year in June, and it still is completely unbelievable to me that you could uncover something like that on your own. So what is your next investigation? Is there one? Well, with this case, there was still one little girl in the barrel that has not been identified. They know that she was biologically related to the serial killer. It was his daughter. Unfortunately, they don't know the the mother. They don't know who she is. It's still a big mystery. So that's kind of my number one priority right now. I think that she deserves, you know, her identity as well. And she shouldn't just be categorized as the serial killer's daughter. She's, you know, just a little innocent baby as well that deserves her name. Yeah, completely. And how are you doing with that? How's that part of the investigation going? <laughs> it's hard to know until you come across a huge hint that completely turns everything around. So all I can say is I'm certainly spending my spare time trying to find any answer Hopefully something will come of it soon. I was wondering, can we catch up when you do know? If you figure it out? <laughs> uh, sure, but I, I have a an odd feeling that it probably won't <laughs> be me. It's probably going to be uh, law enforcement <laughs> coming well, out with that. <laughs> it wasn't them before, so well, who's to say it wouldn't be you again? Anything is possible, apparently. <laughs> Just got to know where to search. Yeah, absolutely. I would always bet on the librarian. (laughs) 
what an incredible story. I know if I had a mystery to solve, I'd be straight on the phone to Rebecca. And thinking back to that quote I mentioned at the start, the only thing you have to know is the location of the library, I think I might change that to, the only thing you absolutely have to know is the location of a librarian. Rebecca's story really got me thinking, and I started to look into other stories of solving secrets, hidden codes, and espionage at the British Library. Spreading the word, I got a tip-off from Jess Gregory, one of my colleagues. So we decided to meet. Hey Jess, so you tipped me off that we've got some contraband from prison here in our collection. Can you tell me what this is? So these are toilet paper pieces smuggled out of Holloway Prison by Sylvia Pankhurst. And can you tell us who Sylvia Pankhurst is, just really briefly? Okay, so Sylvia was a suffragette. She is the daughter of Richard Pankhurst and Emmeline Pankhurst. She was seminal in the women's suffrage movement in the early 20th century. Because of her various suffragette activity, including rushing parliament, throwing stones, generally causing trouble, she was taken to prison many times in the 1900s and 1910s. In the early 2000s, the British Library received part of Sylvia Pankhurst's personal archive. And within the vast donation were two envelopes filled with squares of brown paper, simply referred to as letters on toilet paper. The squares are dense with sporadic pencil notes, but on the whole, very hard to make out. For the past six months, it's been Jess's job to try and decipher the collection and figure out what the story behind them is. First, she wanted to find out why this acclaimed suffragette wrote on toilet paper in the first place. When women prisoners were sentenced at this time, they would have been put into different divisions according to their crime. As a first division prisoner, you were afforded certain rights, and you would have been allowed to do things like write letters, wear your own clothes, even have people bring your own food in. When the suffragette movement got more militant in the 1910s, these privileges were taken away generally. So in 1913, when she goes in to Holloway again, she mentions that she hid a series of papers under her skirt in a bag, along with some pencils. So she obviously knew that she wouldn't be entitled to paper. She also mentions in her book, The Suffragette Movement, that prison guards could look through the spy hole in the door. So she made very conscious efforts to hide the papers, to put them under her bed. And if she particularly was particularly interested in something she was writing, and couldn't have access to it because of the prison guards, she would scratch it onto the wall. So she'd sort of have this dual system of making notes, scratching things out, and then sort of going back to her sort of very precious paper and writing it down, keeping it as safe as possible, hopefully with the aim of trying to get it out somehow. Right, okay, so she brought in the pencils under her skirt, she brought in some paper, and then the rest of the paper is? The rest of the paper, we think, is toilet roll. It's very coarse paper, this is the little brown squares. She likely would have sort of smuggled a stash of it, I, I believe. And um, obviously, if you had a limited access to paper and you want to write something down, it's sort of a natural mm -hmm. alternative. And it's far tougher at this time than, you know, what we think of now, which would be quite hard to write on. Around uh, the early 20th century, if you're going to somewhere like Holloway Prison, you're not likely to get nice, fresh white paper. Mm -hmm. um, I, this paper would have been something very cheap. And we even know that up until the 1930s, toilet paper was not 
as it said, splinter-free. These things would have been <laughs> particularly rough. So therefore, looking at these different writings on different paper, we have to assume that it's the brown coarse paper that is the paper that we, she was smuggling out of the toilet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd far prefer to be writing on this than have it anywhere close to my body. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Jess mentioned off mic that she never thought she'd do so much research into toilet paper. But as I said, a detective goes where a detective goes. And her next task was finding out what Sylvia had written and why she risked so much to get these thoughts down. At first we thought they might be letters, but on closer inspection you see that there's no names involved, there's no sign-offs, etc. They just seem to be quite dense, erratic notes. So in order to find out what they are, we've gone through her biography and looked at how she's described her writing in prison. And she mentions in 1913 that she was writing things like a diary. She was also writing notes and she was also writing verse. So that was a good place to start to sort of go through these and try and decipher whether these are personal notes rather than items for distribution. What I found later on was that she, when she, she returns to prison after the suffragette era, when she's charged for sedition in 1920. Mm. And we find from her biographers that they mention she's writing during the, her longest term here for six months, she's writing political poetry. And she comes out of prison and she publishes a small book of poetry called Writ on Cold Slate. They're all prison poems, essentially. They're all about women in prison, about conditions, about people she meets, things like that. So... On comparison of these pieces of paper and the published text, we actually found that these pieces of paper correspond to the, the prison poems. Though these items may just appear to be scribblings on toilet paper, they actually represent a significant point in Sylvia's activism when she became more aware of the struggles of working-class women. The prison poems, they're very empathetic to the women that she meets there. She came into prison as a sort of a middle-class woman. She's thrown into a conditions where she's with a lot of working-class women that are in prison for sort of misdemeanors on the street, mainly things like theft and prostitution. So she really meets people that she's never really been into contact before. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these poems are about such women. They're about mothers missing their children, about beggars, about the women who clean in the prison. When she comes out, she writes in her journal that writing was one of the only things that kept her sort of occupied while she was in prison. There was very little else to do, and that it was one of the few comforts that she had. And she advocates, when she gets out, for prison reforms, which include that women should be allowed pen, well, pencils and paper. And it was the first thing on this list of prison reforms that she suggests, because women need something to do, and they need something to occupy their minds while they're in a, such a dark place. Who knew that working in libraries would involve such sleuthing? I asked Jess how she's making sense of these peculiar writings. The thing that hinted that they were, they were of a particular poetry book was there's a reference by her biographers saying that when she came out of prison in 1921 that she published a book of poetry. So one of the easiest ways to see if this was or wasn't was to order the poetry book, which luckily we have, it's very rare, and then compare 
compare them on a hunch that essentially, considering she's just so recently come out of prison and she's just published this poetry book, it's likely she was writing these poems whilst imprisoned. So it's sort of, as soon as she gets out, she makes quite an effort to get this published. So she would have had to have the drafts and she made a sort of very conscious effort to publish them. So that was kind of a clue that if we're going to find some published material that aligns with this, it may be our only chance. And luckily, after some careful comparison and trying to decipher this very difficult pencil yeah. marks, we found that a lot of them aligned with the text in the, in the poetry book. There is a bit of deciphering, you know, that we've had to do. And it's not finished. I mean, I wish I could account for every piece of paper in here. I could probably tell you what 50% of them are. That's pretty cool, though. And I think the fact that you've figured out even what half of it is, like I look back at my old notebooks and I don't know <laughs> half of what I was writing and I wrote that down. So yes, yeah. I'd say that's that's pretty good. Yeah, I think 50% is pretty good. Um, <laughs> Strong. <laughs> yeah. We'll keep working on it and see what we find. I mean, there may, there may be some more sort of general notes. And she described at one point, I think in about 1913, she described writing a diary. And she sort of says that she sort of half abandons this diary because writing of such dark things was a waste of paper. Oh. Yeah, and considering she didn't have much paper, she was sort of, she didn't want to waste her paper, even her toilet paper. So, and she even mentions that when she goes to leave this specific term in 1913, she asked the warden to take her papers out, which is quite bold, but they did it for her. And the diary goes missing, and she believes it went off to the Home Office. And they gave it to the Home Office because she was of particular concern to the Home Office because of her suffragette activity, but also because of her sort of leanings towards working-class revolution. So I'd like to know if that diary ever turned up. Thanks to Jess Gregory. If you'd like to see an example of this collection, a piece will be on display very soon at the British Library's upcoming exhibition, Unfinished Business, The Fight for Women's Rights, which will run from the end of April to August 2020. There's more information about that on our website. And excitingly, Polly Russell, one of the exhibition's curators, will also be launching an accompanying podcast series, exploring some of the exhibition's themes a little deeper. So keep your ears peeled for that. In our final story today, we head to Manchester to meet a man hoping to uncover the secrets of his own past. It's Barry Ashcroft, born and bred in Manchester. I had, I've had a history which started within uh, the Manchester Children's Department. I was removed from my parents when I was 18 months. They lived in uh, Withinshaw and uh, for whatever reason I was removed with my family and was placed in style homes, which is style prison now, it's style women's prison. The only thing I got from there was uh, like a doctor's report saying that I had bronchial troubles and I was moved to Crumsall Hospital in Manchester. But when I approached Manchester City Council, they've never been able to give me anything no school records, doctor's records, anything. So you've got nothing. It's like your life's just gone. You can't look at your past, your own past, you know, it's just non-existent. 
only what you remember in them homes in your head, but it's not family. My name's Leslie Turner, and I coordinate the Family History Help Desk here at Manchester Central Library on behalf of the Manchester and Lancashire Family History Society. The Manchester and Lancashire Family History Society has been based out of the Manchester Central Library for the past six years. At the library, they help people track down their ancestry using the internet, old papers, records, all kinds of obscure data. Every day is different. Annually, we have just shy of 4,000 people who come to the help desk, members and non-members. And again, we try and help them as, as much as possible. You don't have, you know, they don't have to have um, ancestry in this particular area. You know, we like to feel we can help everybody. And if we can't, we know a man who can. You know, that's, that's our sort of attitude, really. I've got an amazing um, set of volunteers got 26 people who come in and the breadth and depth of their knowledge is, is really phenomenal. And you know, you might think, well, do you know what, I don't really know much about that particular area, but I know that there's somebody at the desk, or one of my colleagues who does, and you can put them in touch and, and so on. I think everybody's got their own reasons for wanting to know their, their family history. Some people just don't know anything about it. You know, they might have been in care or been adopted, they know nothing. Other times we've been told something, so it's a bit of a myth, you know, so we want to discover if it's, if it's true. But I, I just think there is a desire to know more about us and what makes us tick and what makes us, what makes us who we are and maybe trying to see if there's any parallels. Yeah, it's, it's connectivity, isn't it? Connections. And, and when you find out what these people have done, you can relate to it. In fact, some of them as hobbies used to raise pigeons. When I first got married, I got this interest in pigeon races and I started doing it. And I did quite well with it as well. And then I found out that one of my grandfather's brother, who lived up near Middleton, he raised pigeons. So there is certain things you can relate to with your family, what they've done and you've done as well, so yeah, I think that's quite true. Barry has been using the service for a few years now. He's managed to track down ancestors from around the UK. He's even just made contact with a distant cousin in Florida. But he still can't stop thinking what could have been. A lot of people probably have never even thought of it, where they come from. They've got the mum and dad and everything, they're happy with that. Well, if you think about it, how many years back where their relatives came from or what they did and everything, they could be surprised. I did find out years later that my mother actually worked in Woolworths in Manchester City Centre. I'd been in there as a kid and what have you, and I could have walked past her and never known. You know, she's behind a counter there and I'm just walking past with my mates and everything and I could have walked past them. I could have had a family, but sadly, through whatever reason, through the council and everything, I never met anybody, you know. And yet, they, they were only a bus ride down the road. You know, and I find it very strange that, you know. I just hope other people out there 
look at the heritage if they don't know about it and you know just have a look at it have a try and you might be surprised who you come up with Some of the stories, we had a, a young lad who was in care, who was trying to get his birth certificate because he wanted a passport. Imagine that, something that we just take for granted. A lady who was in the other week, she had been told she had Jewish heritage, and she was actually in the process of converting. And again, the rabbi had said to her, well, it's better if we know that perhaps you're returning to the faith you know, rather than, than joining it fresh. So that's important to her, to try and find historical information that might back up this story. We often get people in who've been in care or who were adopted, particularly when there's a particular show on TV that comes on. We get a lot of people who suddenly say, do you know what, I'm adopted, can you help me? A lot of First World War stories, people who just, they just never asked. They just never asked the question. We had a brother and sister that came over from Ireland because the brother had been born in Birmingham and he was living in Ireland now and he needed some disability benefit. Couldn't get his disability benefit because he didn't have his birth certificate. Yeah, there's, as I say, all sorts of things. It's not just, it's not just sort of looking for Victorian relatives or plowing through the senses or, you know, sometimes there's practical reasons why people really want to know their family history. Not every member of the society is looking into their family history. Frank is interested in the people from the places he's known and loved. Hi there, my name is Frank Harrow. I live in Staley Bridge, which is, used to be in Cheshire. And um, what I decided to do in uh, 2014, decided to research all the casualties that are listed on the Staley Bridge War Memorial. There's 660 listed on the actual War Memorial, but there is a book that was produced by Kate Booth, which has the 300 missing men of Staley Bridge. So I looked, uh, researched all the lads on the Staley Ridge War Memorial and also I've included the guys who are missing and uh, we've put names to them. I restarted the research in 2014 and did a complete cradle to death um, write-up of everything. So I'll start my story in a moment. During my research of the Staley Ridge War Memorial, I came across a gentleman called Samuel Butterworth. And what he did is he formed the first, one of the first scout groups in Staley Ridge, and he, he was quite notable for this. So off Samuel Butterworth went to war, but while he was there, and I think it was in 1917, he got presented with the DCM. A DCM is a Distinguished Conduct Medal which Samuel got awarded for holding back the Germans with hand grenades while his fellow troops retreated. Samuel went back to his hometown of Staley Bridge to celebrate. In just two short weeks, he was back in the trenches, where he was fatally injured by a shell. Upon hearing the news, local poet Anne Chadwick wrote a poem inspired by Samuel, which Frank recently found through his research. Okay, so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to actually read you the poem by Anne Chadwick. And it's called A Hero from Staley Ridge. Far away from dear old England on Belgian sandy plain, 
I knelt by a mooted coffin. God, it Because I've done the research into him, I think, and I actually nearly know the guy. Okay, um, second verse, second take. <laughs> Far away from dear old England, on Belgium's sandy plain, I knelt by him wounded comrade and called him by his name. Because of these 300 that are missing and all the others that have uh, died since, we're trying to get the War Memorial extended, which cost about, uh, I think, with about £120,000. I'm going home to glory, but I'm not afraid to die. What is yon that I can see just beyond the ridge? It looks to me in the distance like dear old Staley Bridge. And everyone seems happy for its Sunday night. Oh, how they cheer us when we left to go bravely fight. I'm just doing it to, if you like, to get the, the message across that at the end of the day there's nothing glorious in war. They're still fighting now, you know, they would just haven't learned. So it's just trying to get the message across that they are humans, they've, they've had a life and they've put it down so that we could be here. We fought like true British soldiers and charged the Kaiser's host. Say how the treacherous Germans, so cunning and so deep, thought to steal upon us, thinking we were asleep. I think I must have visited about 200 war graves from the lads from Staley Bridge. And it does, I'm not afraid to admit, it comes from the heart. I could see her and clasp her hands once more, but tell her not to weep for me, I've only gone before. Tell her that I died happy, trusted in Jesus' love. They all say they are never forgotten, but if you look at some war memorials, it's just a name. Goodbye, he slowly said. He smiled at me and closed his eyes. Poor Jack. Yes, he was dead. I caught him in my tunic, down knelt upon the plate, and asked God to guide us and bring us safely home again. At break of day we dove his grave, and there he sweetly sleeps at rest, a hero from stage. Hopefully they're not forgotten, but I have when I visit these cemeteries, even the ones in England where I, if I go, I, I take a a bucket with me for want of a better thing and, and in it there's a plastic trowel, plastic fork, bottle of water, uh, a brush and I'll tidy the grave up and give the, the grave a bite um, because you know it, at least they do deserve it. I mean this, this, some of them are quite well taken care of but there's some and, it, and it's the old motto they'll never be forgotten but when you see them you think he, he is, he's forgotten. It does make you feel really great when you are able to sort of help somebody in whatever small way, even if it's just sort of, you know, getting them on the right track or, you know, having them look at something in a different way or be able to show them a website or something that might help their research. It is, it's, it's really nice to be able to do. Yeah. Local library, again, amazing, 
amazing information you can you can find in old dusty old books and pamphlets and stuff things that just aren't online you know it's an amazing service we hear amazing stories and it's very satisfying you know to be able to help people and to help them discover a little bit more about themselves and and sometimes it just kind of like settles them a little bit. They've wondered about certain things all their life, and now they're getting answers. Thanks to Leslie, Barry, Frank, and the rest of the Manchester and Lancashire Family History Society. That feels like a perfect end to our investigation. There's something powerful about the way libraries can hold our secrets. And it's also been eye-opening to see how library staff are so well-equipped to help us uncover them. Remember, the British Library, like many libraries around the world, is free and is open to everyone. We're based at St Pancras in London and Boston Spa in Yorkshire, and at bl.uk, where you can explore our collection from wherever you are. Anything But Silent is a Pixiu production. We'll be back in two weeks with our accompanying series, Joining the Library. But until then, from me, Cleo Laskarin, thanks for listening. <laughs>